Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage podcast with Greg Gregory. Join us as Greg interviews powerful thought leaders and successful team and leadership experts from across the country on teamwork, leadership, and organizational culture. Now let's check in for this week's episode. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, a podcast dedicated to the growth and development of three key areas, or what I call the TLC arena, teamwork, leadership, and culture. Hi, I am Greg Gregory, the founder of the Teamwork Advantage and your host today. And we're excited to have with us Alyssa Cox. Alyssa comes to us with a great background, and it's going to be interesting because she brings to us a cadre of a background, if you will, and have some fun with this. She specializes in organizational effectiveness. And with the pandemic, the last two and a half, three years, effectiveness has become a key word because not just being efficient, but being effective. She also works with organizations and individuals to not only successfully execute change, but to help them thrive in those moments of transition. And that's absolutely key because we've been in a transitional moment for what seems like a long time. Natural explorer, she holds degrees in English, English literature, pharmacology, business, has worked with clients all over the world, including China, Ireland, as well as Latin America. She has over 14 years of consulting and coaching experience with Fortune 100 companies across a wide range of industries, including automotive, pharmaceutical, software, consumer products. She's passionate about helping people, and the key word here is helping people rethink the way they tap into the power of change. It's often been said that the only thing constant in his life is change, and so we're going to talk today about how we can strengthen all of that. Welcome to the Teamwork Advantage, Alyssa Cox. Thank you so much, Greg. It's a real pleasure to be here. We're excited because change is one of those things that some people hate, some people say they like, but secretly hate, and then some people absolutely thrive in it. So talk to us a little bit. First off, a little bit of your background. What got you to doing this? I mean, you've got the background in English literature and pharmacology. And when prior we were talking, you wanted to go into vet school working with horses. So how did you get to this? I got to this, you know, I spent six years with a major consultancy and left, not because I didn't like the work, but because I didn't want to get back on the road. Was a, there was a lot of travel and I was ready to not be on a plane all the time. Um, and now I have my own consultancy and we're all getting back on the road. So you know, we're excited you, about that. <laughs> right. Yeah. But when I left, what I realized was what I really loved about the work was being in front of people, being with people, working through some of their stickiest challenges and energizing people for the potential in some of the change that we were rolling out, the potential for the future and getting people excited about that and helping them work through that. And you know, I left consulting and went to, to an industry role and I wasn't getting that opportunity as much. And so that's, that's how I got here. Um, because through Blue Swift Consulting, I have an opportunity to work with clients either one-on-one -on -one through coaching or in a group setting, right? If I'm working with an organization to really bring change to life in a way that gets folks or tries to get folks from change resistance, change fear to excitement about the potential for a different future. Now, sometimes do you find that that's easier with some people than others and is there a way that you can, I don't want to categorize or uh, stereotype, but obviously there are some people who enjoy getting into this and they really grasp it. 
And you get others who sit back in their chair like this, cross arms, and say, that's stupid, I'm not changing, it's worked this way for years. I think we can get tied up in the language of change resistance, change acceptance, change enthusiasm. But I think a lot of it comes down to risk being risk averse or risk inclined. And people get to that place and organizations also get to that place in a number of different ways. So when my, in my experience, when people resist change, it's because they perceive a high degree of risk in this unknown future state. And there are things that you can do to try to clarify the future state, to try mm -hmm. to, um, to try to understand and demonstrate some empathy, understand some of their concerns and actually address the concerns they have instead of the concerns you think they have. Um, but yeah, a lot of times it does come down to do people view change as disrupting their current state in a way that makes it hard for them to understand what success looks like in the future and how they're going to fit into that picture of success. And when you find people that are experiencing that feeling, that's when you're going to see people that start to resist the change. And it's not because they don't, you know, they may say they don't like change, right? But that's very, it's, it's a very squishy thing to say. Yeah. Um, but at the root of it, it is, I'm oftentimes, it's not clear to me how I'm going to be successful in the future state. It's not clear to me that if I make a mistake in the future, I know how to not mistake, not make mistakes in the current state. It's not clear to me that if I make a mistake as I'm learning the future state, I'm not going to be punished for that mistake. Okay. And so that ends up that that is oftentimes what drives a lot of change resistance. And if you just look at the crowd or look at a room full of people and try to pick out like that's a change resistor, that's an acceptor, that's a sort of that's somebody who's risk inclined, you will get it wrong every time. You can't yeah. just look at people and be like, well, you're of a certain age and a certain sort of socioeconomic background and of, of a certain racial background that I can tell you're going to be a real problem for me. <laughs> that, that will That's, never that ever does work. Not work. Now, what about things such as Myers-Briggs and everything DISC and those types of profiles? There are certain patterns within their behaviors that may lend them to be more risk averse, obviously then um, resistant to change. Is, do you find that to be kind of on target? I like to think about different profiles, not as indicating risk aversion versus risk affinity. Um, I like to think of different profiles and change aversion versus change affinity. I like to think of different profiles as informing how we talk about change with our audience. Okay. And so if you have folks that are perhaps, if you have one way of talking about the change you're trying to roll out, that one way of talking about it will work for some subset of folks in the room. And folks that place elsewhere in the MBTI, like place elsewhere in Myers-Briggs, place elsewhere in DISC, it's not speaking to people, those people, in a language that really resonates with them. Right. And so do I see a particular profile that's more risk averse than not, I see a, a higher correlation between different profiles and then different styles of message receipt. And so if okay. I come in with a hugely data-driven, like we're gonna get lost in the numbers here to excite you about change, people who are more feeling and, and, and intuitive, they're gonna reject what I've got to say. Like, it's just not gonna resonate with them. Yeah. But the other people will embrace it. Now, for those people who are who are more analytical, they're thinking like, oh, this does make sense. This is evidence-based. I can get behind something evidence-based. 
where we typically think about intuitive and feeling people often as people who are more open to a, hey, the future is going to be amazing. Let me paint a picture for you. So it's all about your, it's all about what you're presenting, how you're presenting it. And are you taking the time to tailor your message to the needs of your audience? Mm -hmm. So that brings me to the question, effective leadership. Leaders have to be able to communicate with those that are more analytically based and those that are more intuitively based. So what does effective leadership mean to you? In this context, effective leadership means creating a culture where people can ask questions. Because as a leader, you can only ever, as one person, say one thing at a time. And it's not really, it's not, it's not practical to take the audience you need to speak to necessarily and break them up by MBTI profile and say, I've got a message for you and we're going to have one meeting. And then I'm going to talk to this, I'm going to talk to these guys over here and I'm going to have a different message. It's a different hour. So I can say one thing at a time. You're going to have, you're going to have your message. You're going to have a range of collateral to support what you're trying to say. And for those that you're not, that aren't, where your message isn't resonating, you need to have created a culture, a culture of psychological safety, right? Where people can lean in and say, hey, I don't get it. This doesn't mm -hmm. work for me. Or I hear your enthusiasm. Is there, do we have some evidence? Like ask for what you need. There are corporate cultures and team cultures within a given organization where asking for what you need isn't a safe thing to do. That opens up a line of what I work with a lot of my clients in vulnerability trust. And they have to be able to feel vulnerable to ask that question without fear of retribution. And you have to create environments in your workplace where constructive pushback, constructive criticism isn't personalized. No, it's a good thing. That's right. And if I, if I criticize you, I'm not telling you you're bad at your job. I'm saying this thing didn't go off. And maybe it went off because of a behavior that I've observed as a repeatable behavior over time. But I'm not making a comment about you as a human being. Right. I'm asking and suggesting that we make a change to make your work more effective. We're having a conversation about the work, not about you as a person. And that's, that's so key that we get into that. Uh, Patrick Lencioni's, and I was listening to his uh, podcast yesterday uh, on um, the virtual workplace still and how it's changing. And it's sometimes it works for one, sometimes it works for somebody else, sometimes virtual works, sometimes it doesn't. Same concept, and that's what we're running into now, is there is no one glove fits all, if we'll go back to a an O.J. Simpson motto there, okay? It doesn't fit my hands. No. So if it's not fitting, if, what can leaders do? As a leader in today's world, whether we're dealing with virtual leadership now or we're dealing with hybrid or we're dealing back in person, whatever we're dealing with, whether we're dealing with change or the intuitive person or the uh, constructive analytical person, what can leaders do to become more effective? I like to think about, and in creating this environment of psychological safety and encouraging people to ask questions, provide feedback, you know, I like to think about sort of three things that people like really tactical things that people can do to create some of this constructive environment. And it doesn't matter whether you're in person or you're virtual. 
The difference between in-person and virtual, in my experience, is the drive-by. When I'm in person, I can just sort of saunter by somebody's desk and start up a conversation and build a rapport that way. If I need to sort of slide a message in with one of my executives, I can walk by their office and be like, hey, I'm going to pop my head in. Wanted to ask you a quick question, suggest something to you, and then leave and use that as part of my communication approach. It's much harder to do a drive-by online. you got to schedule something and then we got to get on a Zoom. I'm like, I've brought you here to convince you of something. <laughs> I've brought you here to make a suggestion that I'd like you to noodle on for a while before you come back to me and then we do things the way I wanted you to do them. <laughs> this is not the way it works. And so right. you have to do different right. things. Right? Um, uh, and we can talk about some of those different things. But you know, the three things that, that I think are so important and, and super actionable that we can be doing on our teams is one is take the opportunity to learn from failure early and often. If you wanna build change resiliency on your team, you've gotta help people feel safe that if they try something new, whether that's something new within the existing environment or we're changing the environment and everything is gonna be new, if they try something new, they have space to have supported failure. If they don't stick the landing, you're there to support them. So develop a practice with your people where you sit down and talk about, hey, this and start on small things. Like, what do you think could have gone better in that meeting? What do you think could have gone better in that presentation? What would you do differently next time? And asking those questions often helps people develop a practice of engaging with a continuous improvement mindset and being transparent about continuous improvement, which is what you need to do if you're gonna get help. Yeah. The other thing to know is, when you talk about what's happened, and maybe you've got a project that's gone a little off the rails. When you talk about what's happened, there is always, a, it is really tempting to get stuck in the retrospective. What happened? How did that happen? Whose fault is it? But that's only gonna get you so far. You can examine the problem and admire the problem, but that's not gonna get you to the resolution and solution. And so when you're talking about things that have things that have become problems, if you're talking about failures, big and small, you can spend some time sort of experiencing that catharsis of what happened, right? But make sure that you're taking the time and making a deliberate pivot at some point in that conversation, the earlier, the better, to what needs to happen next. And so for your subordinate that is working on their presentation skills, it's what should they be doing next time? to improve on something that didn't go so hot this time. In the case of a project that's starting to go off the rails, it's, okay, what resources do I, what can I do to get you back on track? What resources can I unlock for you? What doors can I open for you so that we can course correct what's going on here and we can continue progressing to, to our end state. So don't get stuck in the retrospective. Okay. And then the third thing is encourage conversations between peers. So ask the people on your team to talk to others in the organization who have done similar work and to ask really explicitly, what, do you, what would you have done differently if you had it all to do again? This is not a question of like, tell me how you failed. This is, I recognize your success in this space. I also recognize there may be things that you would have done differently if you had it to do again. So ask that question. What would you have done differently? What were some of your lessons learned? What are the watchouts that you would guide you would guide me to make sure I'm keeping front of mind? This okay. is a way to destigmatize 
failures, big and small, and create an environment people talk about in a very transparent way, things that didn't go so hot so we can have, we can learn as a community. I'm going to play devil's advocate with you if I can. Please do. Okay. As devil's advocate, um, what do you say when people say, that just takes too much time. I don't have that kind of time. I've got work to do. I don't have time to be babysitting my people. <laughs> if you don't have time to develop your people. You don't have time to lead. Them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Leadership is the amplification of impact, right? We've all been individual contributors, whether it's in our personal or professional lives. But the thing about pure individual contributorship is that there is a natural ceiling to what you can accomplish. And so like one thing I like to ask people is how many hours do you dedicate in a given day to achieving your goals? And if you're working by yourself, then that number of hours, that's the total extent of creative thinking that you can possibly apply to, to your goals, right? That's, that's it. You're capped at what you personally can contribute as a leader you're able to harness the efforts of more than just yourself and really amplify the number of hours dedicated to this now community goal. And if you are managing individual contributors, then your impact, the amplification of your impact is purely linear, right? I added one person, so now it's my hours plus their hours. But if you are cultivating another leader, the impact that you can have is your hours plus their hours, plus the hours of those that this nascent leader is able to harness from elsewhere in the organization. You start to get real exponential growth in your impact. So mm -hmm. if your perspective is, I don't have time to babysit my people, the term babysit there is really telling. You're not babysitting children as a leader. You are developing other leaders. And so this is a really fundamental mindset, mind state shift that we need to make. The example I like to use there is um, the simple drop in a pond and the ripple effect of how it explodes out and has such a great impact on so many different people across the line. That's right. And it can impact your team, teams around you. And then it just starts, and your words here, exponentially grow, which I think is powerful. You said something earlier that I really want to go back and touch on. You talked about failure. We've talked on the podcast in the past with other guests to celebrate failures. And I think that's really a great tool to recognize and not just celebrate a failure as a person, but celebrate the failure as the team. What, what do you mean when you talk about having a constructive approach to failure? In, if we come back to like the risk inclined versus risk averse environments, mm -hmm. right? In risk in, in risk averse environments, we might celebrate success, but failure is criminalized. And you are told both implicitly and explicitly to stay in your lane and do things where we've always done them. And the behavior that, that that fosters is when things start to go wrong in little ways, people obfuscate, people cover it up. People sort of, they're like, don't look here. I'm dealing with it. I'll be fine. And they don't talk about the things that are the small things that are going wrong. And these small things then have an opportunity to build and turn into big failures. I like to refer to it as hiding a dead fish in your desk. And the challenge is you think you're hiding it really well, but everyone around you can smell it. Yep. Everyone knows it's there. In risk inclined organizations, 
people take the dead fish out of their desk. They put it out for everybody to see. They're like, I know we all smell this. Let's actually talk about it. Let's talk about getting rid of it. Get it out of your desk, get it out of your office, get it out of your project. I like the way you put that with the dead fish as opposed to the elephant in the room. Uh, Elephants also smell, but are much harder to hide visually. <laughs> yeah, and it, that's just, it's so powerful because again, something you said earlier, and I wanna go back and reiterate, is talking about it regularly, frequently. It lets people know that that's an okay thing. It's an acceptable process. When you don't talk about it, then it's the acceptable process not to talk about it. It also makes talking about things that didn't go so hot the exceptional experience. And now it feels like we're having a performance evaluation. Mm. I, I personally, I hate performance evaluations. It gives me real anxiety. I don't know anxiety. anybody who likes them. But they don't have to be as awful. They don't have to be awful. And, my, and when I actually get in the room, they're not awful. Mm -hmm. right? Because I'm working with good people. I'm working with people who see my value and want to grow me right? Want me to grow my skills, want me to be successful. All of the negativity coming into my performance evaluation is something I do ahead of time. That's my anxiety. That's my sort of negative self-talk getting ready for this conversation that actually is much ado about nothing, right? We have a great, I have a great relationship with my boss. We have great conversations about what's going well, what could be going better and what it's going to take to get there. Mm -hmm. And so recognizing that sort of this anxiety that I have, this is the same kind of anxiety that people feel in risk averse organizations. When little things start to go wrong, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to talk about it because talking about something that's not going well becomes a spotlight. It becomes a thing that you avoid because you rarely talk about it. And if anyone's talking about something that didn't go well, it's because that person's about to be shown the door. There's so many areas that that is applicable. On the podcast, we, we often say that the information we share here is not just applicable at work, it's applicable in our home lives as well. And the more communication is opened up, uh, whether it's in um, a, a personal relationship with someone or in your health, the more people talk about it, the better it starts to get. And then you can capitalize on the team's ability to grow that solve those problems all the way across the board. And you're just, that just really hit home for me right there, what you just said. So yeah, I read somewhere when you argue with your spouse, it is rarely, if ever about the thing you think you're arguing about. Yeah. What you're actually arguing about is all of the other built up, Pent up. built up sort of subtext that you're actually not going to explicitly say right now, but it's going to inform the way you're interacting. And in fact, you may not even be having the same argument. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's just, it's so powerful when we stop to think about that. What, what are your thoughts about teams that don't discuss? Are they becoming toxic and are they experiencing a higher turnover? Are they experiencing more problems? Are they decreased productivity compared to those that talk? What are the, what are the new things that you see between those who don't talk and those who do? Teams that don't talk about things that aren't going well and don't have sort of a regular practice in this space, 
the risk is now if everything's going great, then people are talking. They're talking all the time about everything that's going great. And they aren't necessarily a cohesive team, but at least they're a team that talks. And they're, they're a team that talks. A lot of times you listen to people talk about their dogs and it's, I'm going to tell a story about my dog. I'm going to tell a story about my dog. This is a story about my dog. Nobody's having a conversation. We're all just passing stories around. That's the kind of interaction you get on those kinds of teams. When things start to go wrong in any one of those team members' projects or any one of those team members' spaces, the conversation shuts down. And what you get then is increasing silos around your team. I can't, because I'm not talking to you about what's going on in my work, I'm not leveraging your insights, your skills to solve my problems. I'm not being transparent. So now all of a sudden, the only resources I have to solve my problems are my own. Like I'm as good as it's going to get. And the knowledge to solve my problem may not sit within my head, but I'm never going to know. And I'm never going to know what else could come in. And so you're going to, you end up then experiencing deep silos and, and rifts around the team. And also communication up becomes stymied. And so you get team leaders who are often surprised, right? This is not going well. I'm surprised. I had no idea this was not going well. Why didn't you say this to me? Why didn't you ask for my help? Now I, as a team leader, am embarrassed because it appears, and perhaps rightfully so, to my leadership that I don't know what's going on. And so you get this, this environment. And now because you've made me look bad, I'm defensive. And I'm going to take some, some countermeasures to make sure that I don't get embarrassed again. You get people that are exclusively in the business of protecting themselves. And that's yeah. not a team. No. And in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in, in so much and to some level, even the 80s and 90s, it was more of a turf war all the way through. And we had to protect because we didn't want somebody coming up. And now people still feel that, wait a minute, have I been blowing smoke and mirrors all the time? And now somebody else actually knows what they're doing. They're going to pass me. And I may lose my job. And so they start hiding things. And in reality, if they just opened up, that wouldn't happen. Am I on the right page there? Yes. If you've got, you know, if you're talking to, if I'm talking to the CFO about a project that my team is doing, there are five of us in the room. We each have projects. I may bring to my CFO a sheet that says, here's what we've accomplished. And here's actually what we're going to miss. We are going to miss some things. Here's why. Here's why we made the decisions that we made. And if we want a different outcome, here's the help I need. Now, my CFO may not be happy that we're not meeting our, we're not meeting our goals, that we've gone now from green to yellow. But your CFO will appreciate the candor and transparency. And what you're doing is you're building trust with your leader. Mm -hmm. So I can come to you. My leader knows that if I'm having a problem, I'm going to come and surface it. That when I give a status report, when I provide dates, those dates are in fact the truth. They are the best information that I have. And in a transparent world, we can all move forward together. If the people around me aren't surfacing those, it can be tempting. If the people around me are only glossing over problems and only telling the good stuff, there are problems on every project. If you're on a project without problems, you're lying to yourself. So if everyone too, yeah. around you, right, if everyone around you is only highlighting sort of 
the greatest hits, it can be tempting to, to get nervous and say, I'm going to highlight something that's not going well, and I'm going to look like a failure relative to my peers. But trust me, your CFO knows that no project is without its problems. And developing a reputation for transparency and a reputation for trustworthiness is very, very powerful within the organization and way easier to lose than to build. So take the opportunities that you have to build trust by surfacing things that are not going well. So that brings me to the question, how can leaders build? So we're now going to get the how part. Yep. How can they build trust? How can they build an environment for continuous learning and encouragement um, and improvement? We know that it's important. Leaders know it's important. How can I, as the leader, do that? So if we're talking about building trust with people on your team, right, and people that report to you, mm -hmm. it is, again, start with those three things. Surface failure often and early. Don't get mired in the retrospective. And encourage peer-to-peer -peer sort of note sharing on things that could have gone better. And it's really think about embracing a, an environment of psychological safety. Keep the work conversations about the work. Make sure it's not personalized. When you see conversations that are starting to get personalized, when you see people interacting in a way that is going to silence constructive feedback, that's going to silence transparency, stand up and say something in public. Like stand up and say something out loud to the people around you. Like that's not how we work. Let's redirect. Can you answer the question this way? Okay. Or the right question is this. Be an outspoken advocate for transparency, candor, and psychological safety. Because if you're doing it under the, like if you're doing it behind the scenes, people may have a hard time seeing it. When you're managing up, building a sense of trust with the people above you is really fundamentally about, about transparency, right? Being clear and honest about what's going on in your organization. When you have a plan and an agreement on how, things are, how you're going to do things with your leaders, do them that way. Or with your peers, do them that way. Be the person that others can rely upon to execute the plan that you've agreed. Be the person on your, on your manager's team or on your, on your senior leader's team that consistently brings a knowledgeable and candid, transparent view of what's going on in the organization. And it's not just what's happening and what happened, but also what we're doing next if we need to, if we need to course correct and what help we need to course correct. Don't come and tell me about your problems if you don't also have some kind of narrative about what help you need. What, what possible solution it is and how to get there. That's right. Mm -hmm. You've said a phrase twice that I've gotten two of the words. I don't have the third word. Transparency, candor, and... Oh, boy. Three things that you're, that you're trying to hit. was transparency, candor, and I missed the third one. And trustworthiness. Trustworthiness. That's it. Okay. Um, I want to make sure I wrote that down. And folks listening, I'll tell you right now, I've got to go back and listen to this again. I'm in the moment right now chatting with Lisa, and I'm still, I want to get the words down. So I always encourage people to go back and listen to the podcast at several points and pick pieces up. Um, it's, this is not just a, a, a whodunit mystery. So this is a good way to go back and pick things up. 
let me ask you this, Alyssa, if we get into it. When we think about leveraging our professional networks, LinkedIn has become a major player in professional networking. And I go through people's profiles and I'll see, you know, 1,500, 2,000 contacts. Well, I've got a lot. And there's people that are connected with me that I've never met. And I get that. Or there's people that I've met once or twice at a conference. That's not networking. So how can we leverage our professional networks? And what do you advise for professionals in the workplace today? What I like to say is your LinkedIn, your sort of list of LinkedIn followers or connections. This is like, this is like the old school Rolodex, right? Yep. It is a list of people, but it doesn't assign any metadata to those people. It doesn't assign any additional information to those people. No value to them at all. Yeah. When you want to accomplish something, you're not going to deploy your 500, 500 people to accomplishing that thing. If you've got a personal goal, you're going to take, think of your, your LinkedIn list as a deck of cards. You're gonna pick the four or five people or the four or five cards out of that deck that you're gonna to need to win this trip, to win this hand, to achieve this goal. And those people are gonna come in the form of mentors, uh, advocates, and followers. And so I would ask that as you're thinking about your network and taking this framework and applying it to the way you drive connection and you know, leverage different people's capabilities to drive change within your organization, it works the same way. Think about you know, who is helping me expand my boundaries? Who is bringing a perspective that I didn't have myself, right? Who is giving me fresh eyes on a problem, on a question that I have? These are mentors. Who's unlocking resources for me? Who's pounding the table to open doors for me that I can't open for myself? These are advocates. These are people that you go ask for things from. These are people who are going to lend their equity to you in pursuit of their goals. And then followers, who's going to help me do the heavy lifting? Who do I trust to put hands on the keyboard with me and make this thing actually happen? And these followers are typically people for whom you are a mentor or an advocate. And so as we think about networking and we think about really leveraging our network, stop thinking about successful networking as a volume game. Excuse me, stop thinking about it as a? Stop thinking about networking as a volume game. Volume game, okay. It's not about how many people are in your network or how important they are in the organization. It's about what they can contribute to achieving the goals that you've set for yourself, for your team, for your organization. So the first oh. step is, of course, setting that goal, but mm -hmm. then finding the five or six players that are really going to make a difference in moving you toward that goal and leverage folks' contributions and aggregate their efforts toward achieving that goal. How important is it for someone who would network to step in and instead of personalizing, for example, my goals, if I wanted to help you with yours, if I wanted to become an advocate or a mentor for you, is there any no harm, no foul? Is it advantageous for me to do that for you? Um, what are your thoughts on that from a networking point? If you are, so the third, right, the third group are followers, right? 
And these are people for whom you are a, a mentor or an advocate. If you find within your network that the only thing you're doing is consuming, then you're very quickly going to find you don't have any followers. Mm-hmm. And you will develop a reputation as a consumer only. Yeah. That goes back to uh, Dr. Covey's book, The Seven Habits in the Emotional Bank Accounts. That's right. Absolutely ties back into that. You started to say something and I cut you off. I'm sorry. But the other thing I was going to say is when you're asking, a lot of times people are nervous about asking for advocacy because you're asking somebody else to do something for you and what's in it for them. And so it's important in those scenarios to sort of broaden your lens. So the example that I like to give a lot of the folks that I coach is you're doing an informational interview. You want a new job and you've gone, you found Sue and you're doing an informational interview with Sue because fundamentally you want a new, you want a job with Sue's organization, but you're asking yourself, what's in it for Sue? This would be complete altruism if she were to connect me to the right job, like the right posting or another manager. It's absolutely not. From Sue's perspective, she's looking to bring, develop a reputation within her organization for bringing in good talent, identifying and attracting key talent in the organization. This is a really mm-hmm. important skill as a manager and a leader. And Sue is looking to burnish those credentials. Sue's also looking to bring people into the organization that will be allies for her, good people that she can trust and that she can leverage contributions from in the future. These are things that a lot of job seekers don't think about when they're talking to to the Sue's in the world. But Sue also has motivations that that are satisfied by her helping you if you're the right candidate, right? If you show up well, if you are the right fit for the organization. And so figuring out how to align your goals, picking your advocates, and then making a case for the alignment of your goals and their goals is really key to actually encouraging that advocacy and helping that advocacy run smoothly. And in the case of Sue, right, you're not going to say, hey, Sue, I am going to help you burnish your credentials. What you're going to do is you're going to say, hey, I'm qualified. Here's how I'm qualified, because you know that this is something that Sue is likely looking for. I'm really qualified for the organization. I've done my research. This is a cultural fit. I can give you some anecdotes that demonstrate that I'm a cultural fit here. If you're the right person for this organization, it is in Sue's interest to get you in, whether it's on her team or someone else's. Exactly. Yeah, it's not about just me. It's not about just you. It's about how synergistic, and I don't really love that word, but synergistically how we can pull it together with everybody. That's right. That's right. You know, we're right at the end here. In closing, what advice would you give? You could give a leader three ideas that they can implement in the next one to two weeks. What would be three things they should start doing that they're not currently? In addition to, you know, surfacing failure often and early, breaking out of the retrospective and encouraging peer-to-peer lessons learned sharing, I would say assess on your team what are the triggers for transparency on your team. What are the things that are holding you back from being transparent with your team and the things that are holding your team back from being transparent with you and others? And you may need to enlist some help. It can be very hard to see that within the confines of your own team, people who are in it. 
So don't be afraid to bring in somebody else to just have a listen and observe mm -hmm. and then talk about what you're hearing. One of the things I often say is we're all willing to help somebody else, yet very seldom are we as easily willing to ask for help. It's really hard and can be a very scary thing to do. The other thing that I would say is don't just look yourself. Ask your team. Ask your team, what can we be doing to work better together? What are the things that are holding us back? And again, this may be something where you want to bring somebody else in to have this conversation with folks because they may be more candid with somebody else rather than with you. And then the third thing, and I'm going to go back to this, is don't hide a dead fish in your desk. Find some dead fish, bring them out, and talk to your team about them. Because one of the most powerful things that you can do for your team to build trust is to demonstrate vulnerability. So talk to your team about some experiences that you've had with things that didn't go so hot, things that you wish you'd done differently, success stories about, hey, this wasn't going very well. I was really nervous about sharing it with others, but then I told person X and person X was able to help me fix it. And we were, so I'd like to do that. Be transparent, but also be vulnerable with your team. I think we just got the title of this podcast. Don't hide the dead fish in That's your desk. Right. That's right. So the podcast about rotting fish. Yes. Who knew? Yeah. Alyssa, thank you so much. It's, it's been informative. It's been powerful. And again, folks, I just want to reiterate, go back and listen to this. There's tips throughout this entire podcast that you can pick up on. Notice the things that Alyssa brought up a couple of times in here. And I think that's going to be very powerful. Whether you're in a supervisory role, a team leader role, an executive role, it does not matter. What she's talking about here is absolutely applicable. Uh, Alyssa, if people need to reach out to you, what's the best way? The best way you can reach me. So of course you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Blue Swift Consulting has a page. I have a page. Connect with me on LinkedIn. I always like to hear from our audiences. Uh, you can also visit blueswiftconsulting.com where you can see sort of what we do and how sort of the ways that we go about helping individuals and organizations. And there's a place in there to schedule an intro call. I would love to have a conversation. So get on the website, click the get started button, and let's schedule an intro call to talk about what challenges you're facing and where, where you'd like some help. Because okay. oftentimes these generic conversations about things that I recommend that you do, it's not real until we start to apply it to your situation. So let's mm -hmm. talk about the, the reality on the ground where you are and how we might tailor and tweak some of these approaches so that they work best for you where you are. Once a week with the Teamwork Advantage, you really do get some great ideas and skills that you can implement immediately. Until next week, remember that having a good day is just being average. When you listen to the Teamwork Advantage, we know you're not average. So go make today an excellent and exceptional day. Until next week, take care. Bye-bye. This has been the Teamwork Advantage with Greg Gregory. To learn more about how Greg can help your organization develop a powerful winning culture, visit teamsrock.com. That's T-E-A-M-S-R-O-C-K.com. Be sure to join Greg next week when he interviews another exciting and powerful thought leader on the Teamwork Advantage. Until then, as Greg says, make sure you have a great week because a good week is just being average.